Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Last week we began a new sermon series in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, we only got to the end of verse 1. And there we were seeing that uh, verse 1, Matthew 1, 1, is something of a summative statement uh, that sort of embodies, encapsulates uh, so much of what the whole Gospel is all about. And today we'll be coming to the genealogy of Jesus Christ recorded for us uh, by Matthew in verses 2 to 17. So then let's begin by reading this together. Uh, We'll read from verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1 through down to uh, verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. For many modern readers, the beginning of Matthew's gospel strikes them as being rather uninspiring. For many modern readers, the beginning of Matthew's gospel is nothing more than a long list of rather hard-to-pronounce names, a rather long, boring list of people that lived a long time ago in a land far, far away. And you can imagine someone thinking, and perhaps you've even thought this yourself, how is this relevant to my life? What difference does this make, this genealogy, make to my life? 
And why should I care about a very long list of hard-to-pronounce names? Well, this morning we will be mining the riches of Matthew's genealogy. And there's gold to unearth in these verses. If you're not yet convinced, my prayer is that you'll come away from this sermon excited about Matthew's genealogy and come away with a greater understanding of its purpose and of its significance. Uh, We can see the words on the page, we can read them, and we can, to some extent, comprehend them. But we need to understand the significance of them. We have sight, yes, we can see the words on the page, but what we need is insight. We need to get inside the meaning of these verses. And in order to do that, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So then, before we continue on, let us pause and pray and seek the help and blessing of God. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed seek for the blessing and help of the Holy Spirit. That we recognize that we do need insight. We need to be able to see clearly. We need to be able to perceive the meaning of your word. And so we need our hearts and minds to be illumined. We need our hearts and minds uh, to be instructed by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we might see Christ as we have prayed, that we would behold him. And we do pray that this morning we would behold him and his glory, that we would rejoice, that we would worship, and that we would be transformed. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So then, what is the purpose and what's the significance of Matthew's genealogy? Well, Matthew's genealogy, we must understand, it's multitasking. It's fulfilling several functions all at once. And the first and perhaps most obvious function uh, that Matthew's genealogy serves is to authenticate Jesus' messianic credentials. To authenticate Jesus' messianic credentials. Uh, Matthew makes some very bold claims in verse 1, and one of them is that Jesus is the long-foretold and long-awaited Davidic king, the Messiah, who has now come. Matthew proclaims to us that Jesus is indeed the son of David and heir to the throne of David, his father. And Matthew backs up this claim, he validates his claim, by providing Jesus' genealogy for us. Because if Jesus was not descended from David, he could not have been the Messiah. So then, Matthew provides us with evidence. He presents the facts. He wants to assure us that Jesus is indeed a descendant of David and rightful heir to the throne. And it's important for us to understand that our faith is grounded in history. We're not dealing here with pure fantasy. We're dealing with reality. And the Christian faith is a faith grounded and rooted in history. A Christianity isn't a collection of abstract principles, theological and philosophical arguments untethered from reality. Neither is it first and foremost a system of ethics. No, the Christian faith is first and foremost about Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are historical claims. And if Jesus didn't die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, if he wasn't buried, if he wasn't raised 
on the third day, the Apostle Paul tells us that our faith is useless. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So then, it is significant. It's important that Matthew verifies for us the historicity of the claim that Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, Matthew's genealogy draws from a number of Old Testament sources. There are a number of Old Testament genealogies that Matthew is drawing from, from Genesis and Ruth and First Chronicles. Although for the period from the deportation uh, to Babylon to the coming of Christ, Matthew draws from unknown sources. Uh, we don't quite uh, know where Matthew got his information from for that particular section. Uh, but during this period, it's well documented that genealogies were preserved with great care and that they were indeed readily available for consultation. Matthew's genealogy is carefully crafted. I hope you can see that in the text. It's carefully crafted. He clearly constructed it with great care and attention. And look again with me at verse 17. Verse 17. So all the generations... From Abraham to David were 14 generations, from, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew's genealogy has three sections, three carefully crafted sections of 14 generations. But in order to construct these three sections of 14 generations, Matthew has deliberately omitted numerous generations from Jesus' genealogy. Uh, which was not, by the way, an uncommon practice in the ancient world. And we have other examples of that sort of thing, in, even in the scriptures. Now, it therefore stands to reason that the number 14 must be significant. Otherwise, why else would Matthew admit generations in order to preserve this number for each of the genealogy's three sections? So then, what is the significance of the number 14? Well, a number of proposals have been suggested, and I'll give you the consensus view, and it's a view that I personally find most convincing. What's likely going on here is that we have an example of Hebrew gematria. Hebrew words were each assigned a numerical value. And the numerical value of David's name in Hebrew adds up to 14. But there's more. In verses 2 to 17, the name David is the most repeated name. It's repeated four times. And other than Jesus, who is identified as the Christ, David is the only other name dignified with a title in the genealogy. He is David the King. He is listed, verse 6, there as David the king. And, perhaps most convincingly of all, when you put all of the evidence together, the first time that David is mentioned, he appears in the 14th position of the genealogy. So the numerical value of David's name is 14, and David is the 14th name in Matthew's genealogy. So David is at the core of this genealogy. He is at the beating heart of it. The whole genealogy is structured around the name David. But 
why is it that David has such a preeminent place within Jesus' genealogy? Well, as we considered last week, it's because of the significance of the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom, God promised to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And remember, Matthew's proclaiming to us from the very outset of his gospel that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited royal Messiah, the son of David. In Jesus, the promises of the Davidic covenant find their ultimate fulfillment. Remember, for instance, Gabriel's words to Mary. Speaking of Jesus, the angel Gabriel proclaimed that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So throughout the New Testament, Jesus' lineage to King David is continually underscored, emphasizing then its place of pivotal significance. Now, a question we might want to ask is, why does Matthew's genealogy differ from Luke's? Perhaps you've never noticed it, but they are quite different. At points, why do they differ? It's often said that Matthew traces Joseph's genealogy whereas uh, Luke traces Mary's. However, when you look at Luke, it's clear that he, like Matthew, is without question, I think, clearly tracing the genealogy of Joseph. So then how can we account for the differences between Matthew and Luke? Well, the genealogies diverge after David. And they only come together at a couple of points, converging on Shealtiel and Joseph. And what's going on here is that Matthew's genealogy is a dynastic document. It focuses on the royal line, the line of succession. But Luke's genealogy provides Jesus' actual family tree and Joseph's complete biological parentage. However, uh, both genealogies converge on Joseph, who was indeed first in line to the throne of David. Now, I wonder if you can see here, what is the repeated pattern of Matthew's genealogy? What is the repeated pattern? X was the father of Y, and Y was the father of Z. It's hard to miss that, right? As you're reading through, as you were listening to me read it, it's just boom, 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 down we go. The same repeated pattern. It's followed from Abraham down to Mathan. And it's broken, though, in verses 15 and 16. This should be striking. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Just to catch your attention, we've gone through. X is the father of Y, Y is the father of Z. All the way down through the history of the Old Testament. And now, suddenly, Joseph, not the father of, but the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And Matthew is clearly telling us here that Joseph didn't father Jesus. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And we'll consider the significance of this next week, as we continue on in Matthew's gospel next week. 
Well, needless to say, this is clearly a reference to the virgin birth and that Jesus was not conceived by Joseph, but by the working and power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, then, is Jesus' legal father. And because of this, Jesus is considered the rightful legal heir to David's throne. Now, there is a whole other purpose, though, to Matthew's genealogy. It grounds Jesus' identity in history. It verifies that Jesus is truly a descendant of David. But it's likewise Matthew's way of retelling the cosmic story, of bringing us up to speed. Matthew's genealogy is something of an Old Testament survey. A quick recap of the Old Testament story, from Abraham to the coming of Christ. And Matthew relays to us the history of redemption from Abraham, so that we're better prepared for the continuation of God's redemptive purposes in history with the coming of Jesus. And as we read through Matthew's genealogy, or as you hear these names read, they're to prompt your memory. They're to trigger your memory. These names should invoke, they should summon to your mind the stories that are associated with them. The significant events of the nation of Israel and God's dealings with his people. As we hear these names, we're to view them, we're to think of them as doors. Doors. Doors that we must open and walk through. That we might inhabit the stories behind them. That we might immerse ourselves afresh in the cosmic story. And God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. I'll give a couple of examples of this when you hear the name Frodo Baggins. It's as though you can now step foot in the Shire or find yourself standing on the slopes of Mount Doom. You suddenly find yourself inhabiting a world of hobbits and wizards, dwarves, and elves. And the whole story of the quest to destroy the ring of power is summoned to the forefront of your mind. But of course, the Lord of the Rings is it's not history, is it? It's a fantasy. But... When you hear the names Franklin D. Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Adolf Hitler, you now step through another door. And this time, you've stepped into the real world, into real history. And you've been transported through time to those tragic events of World War II. And all kinds of other events and battles and people associated with World War II will begin to flood your mind. When you hear the names... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David and Solomon, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Zerubbabel. When you hear these names, you must allow them to transport you back in time and to the historical events associated with those names. You must remember uh, that those are historical events decreed by God, authored by God, and you must consider what they revealed to us about God. This is how you're to read Matthew's genealogy. Uh, this is Matthew's way of, in a sense, re-immersing you back into the story of the Old Testament so that you're better prepared to now encounter Jesus Christ. Because as we considered last week, all of history, all of redemptive history from the beginning of creation up until the coming of Christ, 
It's all been building up to that. It was building up to Christ's coming into the world, the one through whom and for whom all things were created. As a point of brief application, most as an aside, if you want to deepen your understanding of the New Testament, immerse yourself, plunge yourself into the Old Testament, and you'll begin to see many things in a new light. In fact, you'll begin to see things clearly. You'll see whole new layers of meaning. New layers of significance will open up to you. Once we understand what Matthew's doing here with this genealogy, it's clear that Matthew is presenting his story as the continuation of the Old Testament story. So then the New Testament doesn't begin an entirely new story. It's the continuation of the old, old story. Indeed, it's the fulfillment of that old story. And when you read the Old Testament, it should be clear to you that it is an unfinished story. It's a story without an ending. As one scholar has put it, it's a story in search of a conclusion. And Matthew wants us to understand that the coming of Jesus Christ into the world completes the story. All of God's precious and very great promises are fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And it's through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Remember, history is theological. History is God's story. History is the outworking, the unfolding of God's eternal decree to bring all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, we must never think that the Old Testament is in some way plan A and that the New Testament is somehow plan B. No, there's only and forever been a plan A. There's one unified story which runs from Genesis to Revelation. Now, if we look again at Matthew's genealogy, a storyline does emerge. Matthew gives to us the outline of a plot. He highlights an interrelated sequence of events. And Matthew highlights these plot points at the beginning and at the end of his three sections of 14 generations. And, because it's important, and because he doesn't want us to miss it, He repeats them again in verse 17. Now, I know we've already read verse 17 two times, but let's read it together a third time. So verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So then, The outline of the plot goes from Abraham to David, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. This is Matthew's basic storyline of the Old Testament. He begins with the patriarch Abraham, moves onwards through time to David and the Davidic dynasty, then highlights God's judgment upon his people with the Babylonian captivity wherein Israel was exiled from the promised land because of their sin, their transgression of the covenant. 
all of which has been building up to the coming of Christ. Now, we won't spend much time considering the significance now of Abraham and David. And we covered that last week when we explored the importance of the Davidic and uh, Abrahamic covenants and how Jesus ultimately fulfills them. But I do want to focus some time now on the significance of the deportation, Israel's exile from the land of promise, and how it relates to the coming of Christ. The Babylonian exile begun either in 586 B.C. or 597 B.C., and it ended in 538 B.C., when the Jewish people during the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, were first able to return to the land. The Babylonian captivity, as already mentioned, was God's judgment upon Israel. Military defeat, followed by captivity, enslavement and exile from the land of promise was one of the curses that God had promised to administer if his people continued in unrepentant covenant faithlessness. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, you can read about God's promises of blessings for covenant obedience and God's promises of curses for covenant disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 15, we read this. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, we read one of these curses. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. With the Babylonian captivity, Deuteronomy 28, 26 became a reality. And like Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, so Israel was exiled from the land of promise. However, God continued to speak through his prophets. He promised his people that they would return from exile. He promised to redeem his people once again from captivity. The prophets spoke of a second exodus, a new exodus, more glorious than the first. God promised to inaugurate a new covenant. He promised his people that he would remember their sins no more and that he would write his law Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets that are the human heart. God promised that his presence would return to a new temple after the destruction of the first. And that the Messiah would come. He would administer justice and establish peace forever. Wonderful promises. And all of these promises and more awaited the people on their return from exile. However... When the Jewish people began to return to the land in 538 BC, expectations were subverted, and the people became quickly disillusioned, disheartened, discouraged. You see, God's many precious and very great promises were only at that time partially fulfilled. Partially fulfilled. And it's true, though, that a number of good things did take place at that time. Yes, the temple was rebuilt, although it was not as glorious as the first. And the people were not quite as idolatrous as they were before the exile. They were, at least to some extent, refined through judgment. But in reality, 
the people returned from exile, not with a bang, but with a whimper. It was a letdown, a washout, we might say. It seemed as though the promises of God had failed. But God sent more prophets, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, and he assured his people that a time would come when all of his promises, his covenant promises, would be fulfilled. When Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he wants us to understand that in Jesus, all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are ultimately fulfilled. When Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David, he wants us to understand that in Jesus, the promises of the Davidic covenant find their ultimate fulfillment. And when Matthew highlights the deportation to Babylon, beginning the third section of his genealogy with the deportation and ending it with the coming of Christ, he wants us to understand that all of God's promises pertaining to the return from exile will likewise be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus brings about a return from exile, the ultimate return from exile, wherein sinners exiled from the presence of God may once again enter into the Holy of Holies. In Jesus, the promise of a second exodus, uh, a new and greater exodus will be fulfilled. God delivers his people from spiritual slavery and redeems them from the power and tyranny of the devil through Christ. In Jesus, the promises of a greater temple are fulfilled. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And all of these themes, the return from exile, the new exodus, the new temple, the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inner transformation of the heart under that new covenant will be developed throughout Matthew's gospel. And he'll show us how Jesus fulfills them all. Again, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Now, this genealogy the genealogy of Jesus Christ and the story that's embedded within it, interwoven throughout it. It's a story for everyone. It's a story for all the families of the earth. And yes, in the first instance, it records the family history of the Jewish people, beginning with Abraham. But do you remember why Abram's name was changed to Abraham in the first place? Remember, Genesis 17, verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God's promise to Abraham was in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Israel was called to be a light to the nations, a means of blessing to all people. And yet with the exception of a few bright moments, did the people of Israel succeed? They failed. They failed time and time again. We've already considered how the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, led to their being exiled from the promised land. Judah was taken captive and deported to Babylon. Such was the consequence of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And when you read this genealogy, when you consider this family history, when you reimmerse yourself in the story of the Old Testament, it's clear that this was a very dysfunctional family. A very dysfunctional family. 
This is not a list of perfect people. This was a family full of idolaters, liars, adulterers, and murderers. Now, it's true that we can read passages like Hebrews 11 and be encouraged and learn from the faith of those who have come before us. But it should amaze us how gracious God is that he first looks at the flower among the thorns. Israel's ideal king, King David, he is called a man after God's own heart. There's the flower of divine grace. And yet we all know the story of David's pride, his adultery, his deception, his murderous will. There are the thorns and thistles of sin. This genealogy records the family history of God's chosen people. And yet the whole story is marked by human failure. It's a story full of dysfunction, sin, and rebellion, even as we read in Psalm 106. It's a, it's a reminder to us all that the world is not as it should be. We live in a world of shadows, a gloomy, dark, cursed world, a fallen world. All creation has been subjected to futility, writes Paul and longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. The dysfunction of Israel's story, it exposes our own dysfunction and reminds us that we are, and we have, all fallen short of the glory of God. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. All of us need God's mercy. All of us need God's grace. The whole story of Israel, the whole story of humanity, is marked by human failure. And yet, at the same time, the whole story is marked by God's covenant faithfulness. Throughout Israel's history, God remains faithful. He is the forever faithful one. He is the covenant-keeping God. And God's plan is to crush sin and to redeem his creation the whole cosmos, and to save a chosen people from sin. To redeem and reconcile a people to himself, not just from the nation of Israel, but a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Aside from Matthew's mentioning of Abraham, he reminds us that it was always God's plan to bless the nations through the Messiah. And he does this by highlighting four women and the lineage of Jesus. Did you notice them as we read through it? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Tamar and Rahab were both Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And while it's uncertain if Bathsheba was a Jew or a Gentile, she was nonetheless the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. These women foreshadow the inclusion of the nations within the covenant community. These Gentile women came to know God, to fear, trust, and love God. And they were brought into the covenant community of God. And in the providence of God, even given places of honor in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. By including these women, Matthew is again reminding us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people, for Jews, Gentiles, men, and women, for all who will come. And Matthew does indeed want us to come. He wants us to inhabit the story. He wants Jesus' genealogy to, in a sense, become our genealogy. 
In Genesis, uh, Galatians rather 3.7, Paul tells us that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith that are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 6, verses 15 to 16, we read, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. If you're united to Christ, you belong to the new creation that has come in Christ. We considered that last week, that new Genesis if you're united to Christ through faith, you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. You're a member of the true Israel of God. Christ is the true vine, and if you're a Christian, you've been engrafted into that vine, into true Israel. Our hearts have been circumcised. Yes, we were once alienated from God. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were without hope. But now, in Christ, we've been reconciled to God and now belong to the household of faith. And we possess a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this reality, which has come through Jesus, must now shape our hearts and our minds and our way of life. We must inhabit this reality. I wonder, have you come to inhabit this reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you come to see your own dysfunction, your own sin and rebellion? Well, what must you do? You must come to Christ. You are welcome to come. All people, from all nations, men and women, no matter who you are, where you are, what's going on in your life, Christ says, come. And when you come to Christ, you will indeed find that he is a good and a faithful Savior, a wonderful Savior, in whom all of your sins may be forgiven, and that in him you might be united and come into union with God himself, that you would be freed from your sin, and that you might have peace evermore with God himself. Now, we must recognize, though, and to conclude, that the story is yet ongoing, we, like our ancient ancestors, live in joyful anticipation. And it's going to be Advent soon, isn't it? But we're not awaiting the first Advent of Christ. We look back upon that. But we are awaiting another Advent, another coming, the second coming of Christ. That great day when all God's promises in Christ will find their full and final fulfillment and be totally accomplished. Christ will indeed complete the good work that he's begun. The psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And we await the return of the King as watchmen wait for the morning. We await with unflinching certainty that the sun will one day rise. Christ will come again. And when Christ comes, no more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He will come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And with the Lord, there is plentiful 
redemption. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the genealogy of Jesus Christ given to us in Matthew's gospel. Uh, We thank you that it validates for us that, yes, Jesus Christ was indeed a descendant of David. He is the son of David, the rightful heir of the throne, and that even now he sits enthroned on high. We pray that you would also help us to be those that would inhabit the story, that this wouldn't just be a long list of names of ancient people who lived a long time ago in a far, far away, in in a place far, far away but that we would come to see and to understand that in Christ this is our family history and that that history is not over. It's ongoing. We're immersed in it. We're in it. Help us then to live in the light of the reality of Jesus Christ, of all that he has done, all that he has accomplished. Help us to be those who would not only though look back upon what has been done but that we would be those who look forward to what is yet to be done, and that we would be like that watchman, sitting in the darkness upon the wall, looking out, waiting for the dawn to come, with that wonderful assurance, that unshakable certainty that the sun will rise, Christ will come again. And we do indeed pray, come, Lord Jesus, arise and judge the world in righteousness, that you might bring to final and complete fulfillment the good work that you have begun, and that all things would be made new. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.